Welcome back to Real Talk with Chuck and Pam. And uh, if you can hear the smile and the chuckle in my voice, it's because I've just told Chuck what the new rules are about crinkling paper and eating while we record. He is on his lunch break, so he's promised to talk or to eat very, very quietly, didn't you, Chuck? Can you hear me eating? I know I don't. You're doing really well. I'm proud of you. Can you hear me? Nope. Nope. Okay, good. <laughs> good job. Good job. Now I know what to do. Uh, we have so many movies to review. We're only going to really be able to touch upon a few of these at a time. Um, so let's let's take a look. What do you want to look at first? Well, I suppose we need to look at the two big ones as far as press is concerned, and that would be uh, Bros and Blonde. All right. Uh, let's then, let's... Uh, if we have time, we'll touch on uh, the greatest beer run ever. And then there's a couple others, I think, when you saw that I did and when I saw that you did. So, yeah, it's it's a big week. And this is what we like. It is. Uh, this is why we do this. We're getting into award season. So, you know, the, the worthy stuff is coming out or stuff that they want you to think is worthy. Yeah, sometimes those are two different things, aren't they? Yep. yep. <laughs> well, let's start off with Blonde. This is a story of Marilyn Monroe. And we've got Andrew Dominic, who plays the, or who is the uh, director. Maybe he plays the director, too. I don't know. We'll talk about that later. He's also one of the uh, writers. It is based on the novel by Joyce Carol Oates. Um, Anna de Armas, who uh, plays Norma Jean or Marilyn Monroe, is our lead actress here. Lily Fisher plays the young Norma Jean. And I call that to your attention because in my mind, she was a standout. Not that Anna de Armas is not. Um, she does an incredible job of embodying Norma Jean and Marilyn Monroe, two separate entities um, in my mind. And I think that's what the director really wanted us to think is that these were two different people in this woman's mind. Um, this is a tragic story from the beginning. Oh my goodness, the very beginning as young Norma Jean um, is trying to navigate these really rough waters, literally and figuratively, with her mother who's got some mental illness issues. Her mom is Gladys, played by Julianne Nicholson. Um, man, tragic, tragic um, beginning to this film. It just, it gutted me, Chuck. Um, and then we flash forward into the 1950s when Norma Jean is being discovered as Marilyn Monroe. And her discovery process is not a very ethical or moral one. Um, and I am going to admit that I made it an hour and a half into the film. It is almost a three hour long movie. And I didn't feel like it had a story to tell. I think it was just snippets of tragic moments in this woman's life. Did it give me insight as to who she was and, and how she functioned? Absolutely it did. Did it explain how how and why she she took her life in the end? Yes, it does. But is it a story to tell? No, it isn't. What did you think, Chuck? I hated it. Oh, you hated it? I absolutely it. hated it. I, I thought it was offensive. Offensive absolutely. in what way? Offensive. Well, in the way it depicts uh, the, the uh, violence and the abuse that she undertook. And you didn't see the worst of it. Oh, I mean, if you, it, if you turned off after 90 minutes, you didn't see the worst of it. I got till about 20 minutes left and then I had had my full fill. Um, you're right. There is no story. 
it's just a series of vignettes uh, in which she is abused repeatedly. You know, if she's not being uh, drowned in the bathtub by her mother or being raped by Daryl Zanuck uh, or in a threesome with the sons of Charlie Chaplin and Edgar G. Robinson, uh, then, uh, you know, Joe DiMaggio is beating her or, you know, it's one thing after another. And I, 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 I didn't understand how she functioned. I didn't get that from the story at all. Uh, you know, this is sensationalist uh, filmmaking. I'm sure that Dominic would say, well, you know, I'm portraying this uh, as a cautionary tale because her story needs to be told. And I think that's a bunch of bullshit in the way that he photographs this stuff. And all he focuses on are these horrendous, shallow aspects of her life. If you watch this, apparently there was now one happy day in this woman's life. Right, right. And that's how, that's what I took away from it, too. It was just one tragedy after another. And then ultimately her demise by her own hands. Nah, but no, you didn't watch the end. That's okay. not what they imply. We go down the conspiracy theory route uh, that the government had that. I mean, you didn't you were not treated to the site of her third abortion. Her third? Yes, her third abortion. See, see the conspiracy is, is that she was pregnant with JFK's baby. And that the government had her undergo a third abortion. And and Dominic puts the camera, it's really great how he puts the camera in Monroe's vaginal cavity. And then we see a septicum come in and separate it. And it was that point that I turned it off. And I basically wanted to say, fuck you. This serves no purpose whatsoever. You are a piece of trash for exploiting this in that way. You can't tell me that there is any sound artistic reason to do that this is garbage this is offensive i hated every second of it and i had to apologize to my wife because she was sitting there with me and finally i enough was enough oh i I am i am speechless and i know no one can see my face right now but my mouth was agape i am shocked oh and you missed the jfk blowjob rape scene too you missed that as well Okay. So yeah, this, this one is complete trash. Uh, and I'm quite frankly shocked that Netflix is promoting this. I'm shocked that Brad Pitt's Plan B production is part of the production producing this. I am stunned that they have anything to do with this and have their names on this at all. Wow. You know, for the first half that I watched, I was like, okay, they're filling in a lot of, of blanks here and they're taking a lot of poetic justice, which I gave them, but I'm quite thankful that I, I had just been just gut-wrenched too many times to continue to watch it because it didn't put me in a place of of love or kindness or understanding. It just was tragic upon more tragic moments. So glad I, I cut it off when I did. You are lucky that you did. <clears throat> and, you know, if this guy really wants to tell her story, you tell the story, not this fictionalized account that Joyce Carol Oates wrote, which she admitted she made some things up. She admitted that, you know, she was never in a threesome relationship with these people. She admitted that other things in the book weren't true, that she was expect, you know, you know, um, imagining what might have happened. And they take that and run with it. So if you really want to do justice to her, if you really want to make a cautionary tale, tell the real story. Okie dokie. 
All right, skip that one. Let's go on to another movie. Let's go on to bros. Take it away, bro. I uh, See, I thought you were going to do this one because you liked it more than I did. And that's not to say I didn't like it. I liked it. I just didn't love it. And I think you loved it. Um, Billy Eichner, uh, you know, this. it's been his mission uh, to have um, gay, trans uh, actors and performers in mainstream films. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. And he gets the opportunity with this movie that he co-wrote, produced by Judd Apatow. He plays a guy named Bobby, who uh, is a podcaster. I don't know how you make money doing this, but apparently you can. <laughs> um, I wish I knew. Uh, and he uh, gets a position in which he is the director of the first museum uh, devoted to LBGQ plus uh, history. Uh, and that leads to some incredibly funny scenes. Uh, and he pours himself into this job. He's been burned before in relationships. He's 40. He's pretty much determined that he's not going to find anyone. He's content with casual sex here and there. Uh, but he's not looking. Until he finds uh, Aaron, played by Luke. Aaron's got his issues too. Great looking guy. He's a hunk. He's a lawyer. He's been burned. Uh, and so it's kind of a one step forward, two step back situation with these guys. They're interested, but they don't want to be too interested. They go on dates, but they don't call them dates. But of course, it gets to the point where they can't deny it any longer. They enter into a relationship. <clears throat> and here is where the film gets very predictable. <clears throat> um, Eichner has said that he's wanted to make a rom-com. And he does here uh, by following every single rom-com beat <clears throat> that you know. They get together and they're happy for a while. There's a misunderstanding. They break up. Oh my God, are they going to get back together? And there's nothing wrong with following this formula at all. And it's done well. There's no question it's done well. But I wouldn't call this a groundbreaking film because it follows this formula. Yes, we have two gay men as the leads in a uh, comedy produced by a major studio. That is groundbreaking. But structurally and story-wise, it really isn't. And again, I have no problem with that because it's done well, at least. Problem I had, though, was the preaching nature uh, of the story. It really is a genius stroke to make Bobby the uh, head of this museum, because then that gives Eichner the opportunity to complain, point out all of the injustices that gay and trans individuals have had to endure over the years. And these things do need to be talked about. They do need to be pointed out. But I felt as though I was being harangued. I felt as though he was wagging his finger at me, saying, shame on you for letting this happen, and this happened, and this happened, and that happened. And my gosh, this has got to be taken care of. I mean, I don't mind him being on the soapbox for a while. But for me, it just became a little too much. And it kept me out of the story. Again, I'm not slamming this movie. You'll probably have a good time. Be open-minded. I just wanted to like it more and I couldn't because I felt I'd been preached at for two hours. Okay. I, um, I agree <laughs> with you up until that last point. Um, I thought it followed every single formulaic aspect of a rom-com, but like you said, if it's done well, that's a okay. I love his pacing, his style, his, his comedic, efforts. Um, he plays frequently, no pun intended, the straight guy here because he's he's not having the jokes. It's situational jokes that arise. Um, he's very quick-witted verbally, and I love that about him. Um, 
I I see what you mean about the preachiness, but I interpreted it a little differently. I saw it as eye-opening information. I learned a lot of stuff. Don't don't quiz me on it because I don't remember it, but at least I was exposed to some different things that I had never been exposed to. In fact, I came home and I told my husband, who's a huge Civil War buff, um, that they used this concept that Lincoln was gay, possibly gay. <laughs> and he goes, well, that's, that's out there. There's a theory out there that that is true. And then he started going into the history of it. So my husband knew all about that. Um, so I thought it was more, I, I was laughing amidst all the history lessons and the histrionics. Um, I was, I was kind of shocked and I don't know if maybe I'm, I'm, I haven't seen a whole lot of sex scenes recently because of COVID, but damn, there's a lot of sex in this movie. <laughs> you haven't seen a lot of sex scenes later, lately because, um, you know, studios have shied away from them. And yeah, it was it was an eye opener for me too. I mean, they are pulling no punches as far as that's concerned, and more power to them. But you know, anyone thinking of seeing this, be prepared. Be prepared. It's uh, the hardest sex scenes I've seen in an R-rated movie in quite some time. The highlight for me in the movies was the meetings that Eichner would have with the various people on the board at the museum. Yeah, every person there has their own axe to grind, and everyone's <laughs> pissed because they've been overlooked for so long they go out of their way to defend themselves those scenes were wonderful i really thought those were, were well done those those were wonderfully done and you can take a look at our interview with eichner and mcfarlane on facebook uh just has to check us out on real talk with chuck and pam on facebook can you watch our fun interview that we had with these two wonderful men that it was not billy eichner on the street he was just no, okay. billy. Pam, pam faced her fears she was intimidated by him, but he's, I told you, he was a nice guy. He was just a little sweetheart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what do we do next? What's up next, Jack? You got I don't know. Let's see, what do we have? Oh, how about, you know, we both saw the, uh, the beer run movie. How about that one? All right, let's take a look at the greatest beer run ever. Um, and I'm going to have a feeling that I liked it a lot more than you. In fact, I think I liked it better than everybody else who has seen it so far, according to <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes. You checked Rotten Tomatoes, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> I posted my review up there. I'm like, whoa, I am definitely in the minority. But that's okay, because my voice, and I'm going to go on my preachy little tour here. Oh, God. Um, my female voice um, hasn't been heard enough because there aren't enough women reviewing movies. So with that being said, The Greatest Beer Run Ever is actually based on a true story. There's a documentary about this story from 2015 about a, a man named Chicky Donahue who lives in um, a, a neighborhood. Inland. In huh? It, isn't it inland or upland uh, New York? Something like that. It's a neighborhood okay. that I hadn't heard of in New York right. City. Uh, Tight-knit community. Um, it's during, it's in 1967 uh, at the height of um the vietnam war and he and his buddies are hard-hitting drinkers and he's still living at home with his parents apparently he's a merchant marine and he's only gone for six months at a time and he needs a place to stay and mom's a bit of an enabler and wants him to stay there dad's had enough of his shit and his disrespectful behavior of sleeping in until noon and then not contributing anything to the family talk about a catholic family by the way <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, I laughed my ass off when he figured out how to go to church without yes. going to church. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, <right>. that's genius. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> 
so that um that the beginning was a bit of fun with that um interestingly bill murray plays uh the colonel and he is the bartender and tavern owner and one day or evening maybe while chicky is only quote unquote five beers in he decides that he is going to um make a beer run to vietnam and drop off some of his hometown beers to his neighborhood boys who are still fighting the fight. Um, and he wakes up the next morning and realizes what he has done and then tries to take it back. But nope, it is too late. Everybody's heard about it. Everybody has hope. Everyone wants Chicky to go and see some of the boys from the neighborhood. Um, something that shadows this whole concept is the fact that Chicky's best friend, and I don't know if I mentioned Chicky's played by Zach Efron. Um, he does a great job. He does. Um, plays, uh, uh, he plays Chicky, and his best friend, Tommy, is MIA. Um, we get a little bit of a glimpse as to their relationship growing up and how Tommy enlisted in fighting in Vietnam. Chicky, the merchant marine finds a ship that happens to be going to Vietnam, hops aboard with a huge duffel of Pabst Blue Ribbon. And somehow stupidly and luckily, uh, maybe not luckily, he finds his way into his first friend's camp, delivers some beers, has some laughs, and then tries to go on to the next friend who is in a much more combative zone. Um, he is not welcomed there for obvious reasons when you see this story. And as Chicky continues on, he's under the gun, no pun intended, to get back to the ship in time in order to get back to New York City. Um, I, I, what I really loved about this movie, and Zach Efron, Chuck, you're right, he did a wonderful job portraying Chicky. You don't really like him at first because you don't, you, you see him parroting everything that his dad says and parroting everything that the news is saying and not really thinking for himself and ironically telling the other friend, hey, think for yourself. Don't be so wishy-washy. I thought that was a, a, a nice little juxtaposition that they put together there. And I was also amazed at how some of the conversations that took place between the divided families, the divided city, the divided country, about whether or not we should be in Vietnam, the protesters versus those who support the troops and the old timers like Bill Murray's character and how he thought that everyone who fought for your country, you know, you die in honor. And then there are other people that say you shouldn't die at all. So the conspiracies that are out there, the, the news, the skewed news that's out there. And then we run into um, the journalists in Vietnam and one of the key uh, characters is Russell Crowe, who plays a photojournalist, and Chicky connects with him. And at this point, Chicky Chicky grows. Chicky learns to understand the world around him and decipher um, bullshit from truth, and how that truly affects not just him but his family, his friends, and his neighborhood. Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was going to be a comedy. I just took a look at the poster, which I frequently do and probably shouldn't, and thought, man, this is going to be a lot of fun. The best beer run ever. Zach Efron, I'm in. Well, it, it had a lot of drama, more drama than humor. Um, and I thought it did an impeccable job of drawing parallel lines between today's worlds and the world during 1967 politically. You're right. It does it, it, it's very timely as far as divisions in our society concerned. 
And what I really like that you pointed out is you have people in this film who are full of the media as well, saying that they're doing a disservice to the uh, soldiers in Vietnam by continually reporting bad news. And you get Crow saying, hey, I, I care for these guys just as much as you do. And I care by telling the truth, because if I tell the truth, you know, public opinion will sway and we will get them out of there. They both have the same intent. They're just going about it in a different way. And I like that. I wish it had been serious earlier, to tell you the truth, because it, I, you're right. You, I really wanted to punch this guy in the face uh, for about the first four minutes. Uh, he's just so completely clueless as to what's going on. And again, the, the film has good intentions. I just wish it weren't so safe. I wish it weren't so predictable. You know, this is a this is a really safe movie. This is a movie that you could I can see them making back in the 30s and 40s. You know, it, it's obvious as to what's going to happen. The message is obvious. Uh, that doesn't make it any less pertinent. But I just wish there was a little, a little bit more finesse to the whole thing, if that makes any sense. Okay, all right, I'll I'll give you that. I I the, the I didn't give it as high of a review as I thought I might have because there were some holes in the story. We talked about a couple of those holes. I won't give that away. And I also felt like the the New York accent was pushed, forced, contrived. Uh, Zach Raffron was fine with it. It was the supporting cast that was like, whoa, Nellie, you're you're working this baby too hard. Tone it back <laughs> a little bit. And that, you know, when I hear stuff like that, it pulls me out of a story. So if you're not going to hire a New York actor, then, you know, just let them talk the way they talk. Because I'm from New York and I don't sound like that. And that's okay. I was going to say, you would know better than I do. I thought it was fine, but okay. I'm going to take your your opinion on that because you know better than me <laughs> all right what else do we got there chucky that I, I think we're down to the ones that uh where i saw and you didn't and you saw and i didn't uh, all right and the one that i saw that you didn't i really want you to see i know you've requested um a link for this film called god's creatures uh i really think you're gonna like it um and Emily Watson's in it, who I always love. I love her in everything she does. Do she's too. often better. She's often better than most things that she's in. Uh, this one, though, this one's got some meat to it. And you can really see that she's responding to this. And Watson plays this woman, Eileen O'Hara. Um, she's a middle-class woman who's grown up in this Irish village, this seacoast village all of her life. She works in a, uh, a plant where they process fish. Uh, she's a foreman there. Um, you know, husband is is there. He's a hardworking guy. They have a daughter, who she's um, I don't wouldn't say keeps at arm's distance, but the daughter is not the favorite, and the daughter has just had a child as well out of wedlock. Uh, lo and behold, though, uh, you know they're just going through their days. Nothing special is happening, and then prodigal son Brian pops up, played by uh, Paul Mescal. Uh Just out of nowhere, he had left years before and then without any notice he comes back to town and mom he is the favorite she just falls all over herself welcoming welcoming him back our dad and the sister uh the guy he tries to get a job and uh makes some hookups with old friends and he also has uh an old girlfriend uh aaron played by tony o'rourke and they start to maybe kind of maybe a little bit see each other again 
Well, one night, Tony comes into work all disheveled, and uh, we find out that she then accuses uh, Eileen's son, Brian, of rape. Uh, the police officers call in Eileen to ask if her son was with him th- this evening in which he's been accused. He was not home, but she's, he was with me. I know where he was. And all of this doubt then starts to spin in her head and things start to happen at work because Aaron, this girl works with her. Oh no. All the women in the community are there too. And they start to suspect that maybe not everything up and up. Divisions start to form at work. And we have this huge crisis of confidence and uh, conscience that Eileen has to deal with. And Watson does a great job dealing with this inner turmoil because she knows something's not right. Oh my gosh. I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna say anything else. Okay. But but boy the ending is all I'm gonna say. Boy the ending ah. is gonna leave, is gonna leave you shaken. I'm at uh, it right now. Just hearing yeah, the description. Well, yeah, just wait until you get into it. Uh the the, the tone uh and the atmosphere uh created by these uh two directors, Sayla Davis and Anna Rose Homer uh, really effective. Uh, this is one of those movies you watch and it haunts you. I, I watched it the other night. I don't think there's been a day that's gone by that I haven't thought about it. Oh my. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with Watson because you just see she's tortured and you put yourself in her shoes as a parent. And well, you know, I'm not going to say much more than that. Other than if you get the chance to see God's creatures, you will not be sorry. I really enjoyed this movie. Okay, good Good to know. I did request another link. Mine had expired and I plan to watch that tonight. So I will have a, re- a review up on our website later today or tomorrow. I'm going to just go with two Halloween movies. Hocus Pocus 2. If you didn't see the first Hocus Pocus, and I didn't, I'm going to admit that. I might have seen bits and pieces. My kids probably got plopped down in front of the TV to watch it so mommy could have some mommy time or maybe clean a toilet or something. So I didn't see the first one, but I did watch the second one. And you know what, Chuck? I had a lot of fun. The three girls that play the younger version of them back in the 1800s are spot on perfect. They do a phenomenal job. These three uh, Sanderson sisters are brought back to life in the current day in Salem and they wreak havoc on the town. And it's up to another set of three young girls to save the day. This is fun. The special effects are fun. It's funny. It's cute. And as you said, it has Bette Midler in it. So yeah, you're going to expect a song or two. Silly me. Um, Sorry. <laughs> I had fun with this one. The other, but Halloween- you said, but you said Hannah Waddington, Waddington from uh, Ted Lasso is in it as well, which has yes. my interest. She plays a witch, and she is having a blast, and she is spectacular. You need to see her. And she's the- always spectacular. She is, isn't she? Yep. Um, and then the other Halloween movie that is coming up is my best friend's Exorcism, and I had the pleasure of talking with um, the young lady, Elsie Fisher, who you're going to remember from eighth grade, as well as a few other things. Um, She is the lead in this and she had a chance to sit down and talk with me. You can watch the interview on CI Living TV this week, Um, or you can always check it out on our Facebook page. It's about a group of four girls two of whom are best friends, Gretchen and Abby. Abby is Elsie Fisher. Um, The two of them, uh, actually the group of four, end up going off into a cabin in the woods. It's always a cabin in the woods. And wouldn't you know it, Gretchen is 
possessed by some horrible demon. And it is up to her Catholic schoolgirl best friend, Abby, to save her soul. This is fun. It's funny. It's a little gruesome. It's a little creepy. Um, it has all the right elements and it takes play, place back in the 1980s. And Chuck, you and I remember the 18 or the, the 1880s. I don't think we remember the 1880s. We no. remember the 1980s <clears throat> perfectly. And they they hit the nail on the head with the style, the aquanet and the hair, the um, TV trays, the TV dinners, Salisbury steaks. It's a lot of fun. It's a comedy horror thriller is what it's described as. And it lives up to that. This is just fun. Great teen film about friendship, loyalty, and family. And, and that's on Amazon Prime. Yes. Her version of Jennifer's Body. Okay. The uh, film from, uh, uh, with uh, Megan Fox from about 10, 15 years ago that I loved. And now everyone is saying it's a great movie. I was ahead of the curve, everyone. You always <laughs> are, Chuck. <laughs> I am, but I'm looking forward to that one as well. So, so no podcast. You are going to be sailing. Sailing on in the ocean. Cortez. I hope you come back. Me too. That would be good. Me too. <laughs> me too. While you're doing that, Netflix is going to fly me to New York for the premiere of White Noise at the New York Film Festival. Uh, press conference, I'm assuming, afterwards with Adam Driver, Noah Baumbach, play Don Cheadle. Uh, and then we'll be back together, like I say, in a couple of weeks. We'll have to talk about Amsterdam and uh, a, a scary movie that I'm looking forward to called Smile. I don't know if you've seen the clip to that, but boy, it looks wonderfully creepy. All right, yeah, Check cool. out the trailer to that one. So um, everybody stay safe and, say, and uh, you know, Pam, have a good trip. Hey, you too, Chuck. Post lots of stuff on Facebook and Twitter so we can see what you are doing in New York City. Check out the accents of the people around you, by the way. I'll start recording some. We'll see Dialect. how that works. Dialect. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Cheers. <laughs>